Any fool can daydream, and this fool, yours truly, daydreams more than is probably good for him. <laughs> In fact, I zoned out a few times during the prep for this episode while I was figuring out what you're hearing me say right now. It's a habit I've never been able to break. It might be a good idea if I define my term at this stage. By daydreaming, I don't necessarily mean fantasising, although that is an important component. I mean going aimless walkabout in your mind, not consciously following any particular train of thought, but just being absent from everything around you, so that when you do return to yourself, you've lost all track of time. Is daydreaming a bad thing? Okay, it's clearly not a survival trait. When we were hunter-gatherers, if you were prone to drifting off in a reverie, that represented a fruit you didn't pick or a quadruped you didn't kill, and somebody in your tribe probably you, going hungrier. And, of course, daydreaming is frowned on in the high-tech, headlong, desk-bound, nine-to-five rat race that developed around us, and it makes you a liability in that artificial world. From early school days all the way through to working for our pension, we are urged to focus at all times, to concentrate, to be diligent, to keep our minds on our tasks. The author, J.K. Rowling, is the most high-profile example I can think of of someone who actually lost their job because of a tendency to zone out. The equation is, diligence equals productivity, and it surprises me that more people don't question it. Because although daydreaming isn't a survival trait, it's obviously something very important for our mental health. How do I know that? I deduce it from the simple fact that we're all on the daydreaming spectrum somewhere. We're all hardwired for it to some degree or other. I say we all do it, but if my observations are anything to go by, most of us do it a lot less than we used to. And I think that goes hand in hand with smartphones being at the centre of most people's lives now. If you possess one of these intentionally addictive devices, and of course you do, what are you doing with your every spare moment? You're checking your inboxes, you're sending text messages and scrolling through seemingly infinite amounts of data, most of it related to so-called social media. What effect is this having on your mental health? According to research described by Jordan Rosenfeld on the website mentalfloss.com, the effect is overwhelmingly negative. Addiction to their phone is likely to trigger anxiety and feelings of depression in otherwise healthy individuals, or to aggravate those traits where they already exist. Now I reckon this can be partly explained by lack of downtime for the human brain. All the time you're doing those things, scrolling, tapping text, checking feeds, you're not doing what people used to do before the advent of mobile telephones. You're not switching off your mind, you're not allowing it to slip out of focus, you're not allowing it to work in a different way beyond your control. You're not daydreaming. Conversely, according to Amy Fries, author of Daydreams at Work, Wake Up Your Creative Powers, your daydreaming is your most productive mental activity, not your least. I was about to say that the corporate world should wake up to this fact instead of demonising absent-mindedness. But then I remembered an example of a company who did seem to recognise the importance of reverie. And it was a company that used to employ me. Back in the early 1990s, the Swedish telecoms company Ericsson had a design and management centre in Burgess Hill, Sussex, and I worked there as a software engineer. 
There was a senior systems designer in my department who shall be nameless, although I'll call him Bartholomew. We all worked in an open plan environment, with those naff, chest-high, hessian-covered panels dividing the space up into cubicles, and every time I had occasion to walk past Bartholomew's cubicle, which was often, I'd see him sitting behind his desk with his feet up next to his keyboard, his hands clasped behind his head, and a completely vacant look on his face. Apart from when he arrived in the morning or left in the evening, I never saw that man do anything else. Not a stroke of what you or I might call real work, just vegetating in his swivel chair. And yet Bartholomew was held in very high regard. His peers in systems design all deferred to him. Suggestions for ways to implement a function were routinely run up his flagpole, so to speak. And if he didn't salute it, it didn't happen. I finally found out from someone that Ericsson wasn't expecting Bartholomew to do much else except think. Think about systems, think about solving problems. So that's what he did. To this day, I don't suppose anyone but he knows how much of that thinking involved not consciously being there at all, just waiting for insights to pop into view all on their own. But that's the whole point. Ericsson's senior management in Britain at the time was predominantly Swedish. And as you might expect, unlike British management, they had an enlightened attitude to employee relations. Bartholomew was granted so much license to sit gathering wool because they knew how good his insights were, and hence how valuable he was to the company. They knew the value of daydreaming. Daydreaming has also proved to be essential to the inspiration for all sorts of creative and scientific geniuses, from the Bronte sisters and J.R.R. Tolkien to Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. But that doesn't mean it always has to lead to something concrete, useful or beautiful. Daydreaming is worthwhile for its own sake, and is its own reward. Did you ever emerge from a reverie less happy than you were when you fell into it? So, do it, and do it some more. Find the time. Your brain will thank you. 